for tuning in today. This is Robin Carneen, host and producer of Namapa First Peoples Radio, coming to you from the Pacific Northwest. The beautiful flute song you just heard is by Jan Michael Looking Wolf, called Wolf Tracks. We will be featuring his music throughout the show. We invite you to sit by our virtual campfire, and we will share some interviews produced by award-winning documentary filmmaker and photographer Robert Lindahl. He is bringing us this special series called Climate Changes Here, brought to you by Nature's Touch. Robert will share a collection of interviews that are truly inspirational and focus on shared global concerns for not only the environment and ecosystems, but have had a direct impact and loss indigenous people in the Washington state and Alaska regions are facing. For several weeks, Lindahl has been conducting interviews with other filmmakers, scientists and experts familiar with climate change. He has also been attending online Zoom meetings with members from an organization called the Greenbelt Society, made up of a diverse group of professionals, faculty, alumni, and students affiliated with the Department of Geography and Environmental Science at Hunter College in New York City. The topics of discussion have been about the Elwha Dam Deconstruction and River Restoration Project. The other topic being discussed has been about a village in Alaska called Quinnahawk, where the loss of permafrost and erosion of land due to the rising sea levels are having devastating effects on many villages, including theirs. To try and remedy this critical situation, they have started using an organic approach known as bioremediation, using mushrooms to clean up leaking oil and gas caused by unstable foundations from melting permafrost. For the Lower Elwha Klallam tribe of Washington State, the dams being removed means an opportunity to reestablish native fish stocks. They are also working to restore the land back to its native ecosystems that they've always depended on for countless generations. However, without intervention and policy changes, the consequences are dire. It is critical that the United States support and encourage their state and federal governments to make climate change a top priority. This means everyone working together to make policy changes and provide funding in order to slow down and reverse the impact climate change is having on our earth. Flooding events are on the rise and far worse, fire season is longer and more devastating. Many have lost their homes and some even their lives. The secondary losses range from less access to traditional hunting and gathering areas for indigenous people. For others, it is a loss of farmlands, livestock, property, and businesses. Whole towns and cities, including indigenous communities, have had to evacuate and many are being forced to relocate and start over. The special series is being offered to raise awareness and serves as a call to action. Let me introduce our host for Nature's Touch, Climate Changes Here, Robert Lindahl. Born in Pasadena, California, Robert Lindahl received his BFA from the University of Oregon and studied at the University of Southern California Cinema Studies. In 1990, he formed Robert Lindahl and Associates LLC a San Francisco company creating innovative communication products and strategies. He is now owner of Agence RLA LLC. 
Hey, Robert, how are you doing today? It's been a long time since I met you in Washington State, many, many years ago. Hi, Robin. I remember that day. We were at the uh, film festival, right? At the Experience Music Project? In Seattle, yes. Yes, my mom and I uh, had been visiting that event, and we were really lucky to stumble upon your films that they were showing there. So I believe it was Song on the Water that we watched. And after we were finished, we walked outside and there you were. Yeah, we sat down for a long time and we had um, a bunch of mutual friends actually since I just finished that film. And, and it was really, um, that was really an amazing experience and we had a lot to share. And it wasn't too long after that that on your radio show, you began talking about climate change, and that's when you know you and I started our current conversation. You had done some reporting back in 2012. Correct, yes, and I was really excited to hear that the conversation has been ongoing. Little do we know what people are really doing behind the scenes. And so I'm really glad that you invited me to help you produce the series that we're working on about climate change. This is part one of the series, and I want to give you a chance to talk about how you got involved and who you got involved with. Right. Thank you. Well, it was an interesting journey because it traces back to the Elwha River in Washington State and Port Angeles, Washington, and where I made Song on the Water, which is the film that you mentioned, but also Unconquering the Last Frontier on the restoration of, of that uh, beautiful river. I met Howard Sprouse recently, who is a mycologist and uh, an engineer, a bioengineer, who uh, is working with um, the tribe in Quinnahawk to clean up oil spills that have happened because the permafrost is melting and the the, the oil tanks uh, that serve the village um, fall over and leak and that kind of thing. And we were discussing how to make climate change visible to people through concrete examples. And because Howard has been a fisherman in Alaska for many years and a, a jack of all trades building boats and uh, fishing apparatus and working with uh, tribal fishing groups and that kind of thing. He, he knows a lot of people. So I went on the Howard tour of friends and family and interviewed several individuals, including Scott Ressler and David Skinner and Natalie Monterosa and many others um, who had been brought to the table through our conversation. And I got a chance to sit in on some of these Zoom meetings you've been having with the Greenbelt Society. And so I'm getting familiar with some of the folks that you mentioned, and they'll be featured you know, throughout this series. And I'm really happy that these roundtable discussions are happening and we're bringing together all kinds of people over this shared concern that we have about climate change. In the work that we do with uh, City University of New York and Hunter College, we created a campaign idea called Climate Changes Here, choosing to interview people in essentially different areas of the world, whether they're in New York or Brooklyn or Quinnahawk or up the Yukon River. Everyone has a story. It's something that we live with, that we learn to live with, that we learn to take steps uh, with regard to. We learn to adapt our lives and change them a little bit and adapt our behaviors. And I think that's a critical element that we have to consider going forward. And I know that 
you have these all in, in video format and what, what website can people go to to actually look at the video interviews that you've done? Sure, the video interviews are at the Greenbelt Society website from Hunter College, which is greenbeltsociety.wordpress.com. And on there, you'll see a link to our current podcasts. And this is the beginning, Robin, of something that we want to continue and develop. It's not just a matter of looking at the bad things that are happening or the impacts that we have no control over. It's understanding these deeper relationships. Like even if you're in New York, you need to know where your food comes from. You need to know about the purity of your water. You need to learn about things like quality of life and how you're going to moderate and live with an urban environment and an urban environment that's subject to flooding and hurricanes. So everything's tied together no matter where we are. And for me, you know, more closer to home is I've been so worried about all the wildfires that have happened in Northern California. I was in Southern California a little bit, but that whole state end to end has had terrible wildfire season that's lasted a whole lot longer. And not, not in my lifetime would I've ever imagined the devastation and the destruction that has happened there in California. You lived down here for many years and began your radio career down here. And, and you're absolutely right. It's been terrifying and heartbreaking. And speaking of the impact of um, indigenous cultures and villages and people, the tradition of, of burning uh, fuel in a forest to manage manage that forest proactively, you know, both for the productive growth of things like berries and, and other food sources, but to, to take down this, um, this fuel, you know, I mean, tribes here have always dealt with fire. California is dry. And that's an organic, that's an organic approach, like what's being tried up in Quinnahawk or tearing down dams so that all of that can come back to its natural and hopefully original state that it once was before mankind, you know, showed up and, and put up dams and did things like that. So yeah, we, I, we, we mediated it. I mean, that's why we need people like Howard and remediation, you know, to find, yes. to refine the balance. So it's not one side or the other, or those crazy environmentalists on one side and, you know, we need jobs and, you know, we need to tear up forests and cut them all down and sell them to Home Depot. You know, it's, it's not one or the other. And then here in Washington State, our governor, who just got reelected, Governor Inslee, he's also on board with this whole discussion of climate change and to actually take action on it to hopefully remediate what's been going on for, I think you and I talked uh, off air, like 70 years at least, you know, the stage has been set for what we're all now witnessing happening, you know, to our world. Yeah. And I want to give a plug to Howard here because people need to go visit the remediators.com to see the wonderful work that they're doing with mushroom remediation of oil. And these are old military installations that, you know, were, were important to the idea of American defense in the 1950s and 60s and were placed in remote uh, communities and then dedicated to them to serve their needs as far as fuel and storage and things like that. But I mean, these are old military um, installations and, and nothing lasts forever. Um, people have said to me recently, 
where oil is used, there will be spills. And that being the case, um, how do we clean them up? So you've kind of you've kind of taken us to Alaska talking about all of that. So the first interview that we're going to hear is also a, a you know about Alaska. Can you set that up for us? You know how I look at it, Robin. My experience starting with the film Unconquering the Last Frontier is very unique because it brought me into contact with the idea that we don't always have to 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 make nature better. And the peoples that have lived with nature in in their home communities and in their homelands understand the relationship. And so Scott Ressler's film is is about that. It's about the relationship between people and the land. You know, here's Scott with the full backing of Christine Sees and Dr. Enrique Sala and, uh, and National Geographic taking on a project, you know, where he shot it and directed it and produced it. I mean, he had help in other people shooting. There were more cameras than the one, but often there was the one, and that was Scott. That was Scott making a movie. And, and the trust that was placed in him by Pristine Seas and Dr. Sala and by the uh, National Geographic Society was unusual and amazing. Uh, it was something really well-deserved, though, as uh, Scott found his way to the Arctic to shoot a couple of tests for a week and then brought it back to Pristine Seas and they looked at it and they, they said, we've got to go back and you've got to tell this story. And the story was the story of people. It's the story of people that Scott was able to interview from the Inuit communities in um, what is now Canada and, uh, and Greenland and, and their quest to preserve um, the last ice, which is the area that will have the last remaining ice, the last remaining sea ice in uh, 2040. Well, we're going to take a, a short music break and uh, come back and talk to you just a little bit more about Scott and the interview that you did with him. And we'll be right back. You were listening to Sea of Meditation by Jan Michael Looking Wolf. To find out more about Jan Michael Looking Wolf and to find his music, please go to www.lookingwolf.com. We've been talking with Robert Lindahl about nature's touch. And this is part one with Scott Ressler. The series of interviews is a group of conversations that are truly inspirational um, to me and focus on shared global concerns for the environment for ecosystems, and specifically for the direct impact and loss that indigenous people in the Washington area and Alaska regions are facing. So my interview with Scott 
is the beginning of a conversation about the Arctic and about what's happening there. Uh, he worked there with Dr. Sala and Christine Sees for many years with National Geographic, actually five years. So there he is going back and forth and somehow in the meantime, he got married and had two kids. But that just shows you the dedication that's required and the time that's required. So as a filmmaker, I really came to understand uh, Scott's work as being um, heroic. And, and this guy really, really put up a wonderful uh, work of art and, and a clarion call to action. And uh, I really appreciate him being a part of the series. So um, you're the producer of The Last Ice. And that's quite an incredible and comprehensive film about the fate of the Arctic, uh, climate change, global commerce and politics. How did you begin the film and what, what inspired you as a person to gain a, a, a larger view of all of this? So the film actually began, I work for an ocean conservation initiative with uh, National Geographic called Pristine Seas. And what we do with them is we go around the world on expedition and we make 30 to 40 minute documentaries. We have a science team who uh, creates baseline surveys of the marine area. And then we push for policy to have uh, marine protected areas created. Now, about five years ago, my boss, Enrique Sala, who's the marine ecologist who began the program, uh, said we should start looking to the Arctic, find out if there's anything we can do up there to support any efforts. And so when we started doing our preliminary research, I mean, it became obvious right away, this needs to be a feature. This isn't like the other places we go that are kind of self-contained. The Arctic is just um, obviously a much, much bigger story and a much, it's gonna be a much bigger and more epic uh, thing to communicate to an audience. So that's how the idea to make a feature came about. Now, when we started, it was kind of a, a straight ahead um, uh, wildlife, and sea ice story. It was the you know sad polar bear drifting off on the lone piece of ice with the tear coming down, that sort of thing. And then you know the sea ice is disappearing, but that all went out the window on our first trip, because that's when we started uh, in Inuit communities and filming, and and really it started with uh, going out on the ice with Inuit guides. And I think within the first week, it was everyone decided this this needs to be a film about people because that's what this story is actually about. Um, you know, there's tens of thousands of Inuit who live across the Arctic and the area that we were focusing on, the reason the film's called The Last Ice is because there's an area called The Last Ice Area. And that is the, the ocean between Nunavut, Canada and Greenland, which is where the last summer sea ice is predicted uh -huh. to be in 2040 before we lose all the summer sea ice. And so as the sea ice is melting toward this one area, all of the, the wildlife is starting to migrate toward it and concentrate in this really uh, dense section of the Arctic, which Inuit of course rely on wildlife for subsistence hunting. Uh, they rely on the ice for transportation. It's uh, tied in culturally, it's tied to food security. So it's this extremely uh, uh, you know, invaluable, but also um, fragile area. So then as we started to tell the story of that area uh, and we started to speak to more and more Inuit, um, it, it 
the entire uh, context of all of the present moment started to unfold. So everything from uh, the historical mistreatment and very recent and ongoing uh, mistreatment of Inuit by outsiders, colonizers, uh, governments, um, industry, even a, a history of uh, filmmakers um, mistreating, um, all of that colored what was happening now. And then uh, of course, as the ice is melting and you have lots of um, economic drivers and geopolitical drivers for people to come into the same area, uh, the future is looking um, rather uh, bleak. So being able to um, put all of these things into context, but also to offer uh, maybe a, like, a solution, an achievable, uh, a tangible solution to an overwhelming problem. The overwhelming problem being climate change and the tangible solution uh, in the film being protecting this one area, the Pikiala Sorsuak, uh, which is a co-managed area proposal between Inuit and Greenland and Nunavut. Um, that is an actual uh, tangible solution uh, in the Arctic that will provide um, a sustainable uh, livelihood and, and sustainable culture for Inuit, which I think is something that's been missing from climate change documentaries. Um, you know, I think the, the sort of elephant in the room is that even if you uh, hit all the numbers from the Paris Accord, the Paris Agreement, and you uh, reduce emissions and everything, the timescales of reversing the ice loss are generational. I mean, that's just not going right. to happen. So if you're looking at the reality of what's happening today with the ice melting very quickly, uh, I think it's it's good to focus on solutions that can be put in place right now that are realistic and most importantly are supported by uh, the indigenous groups that actually live in the areas that are going to be most affected. Well, you very effectively dealt with the issue of environmental justice, you know, broadly defined. And uh, that's not often done in films accurately and well. And also the, the impacts to the lifestyle, you know, to the life ways would be a better word to use, right? And you started with um, Alec uh, Peary, who had gone to uh, Denmark with his family and then returned. So there was this reflection on what it means to belong to the land. And he wanted to resume hunting and become a hunter. And so we see it was very artfully done as a director, you know, to see his struggle with his physical um, ailment, his body and his dreams, you know, kind of paralleled against the struggle of the Arctic itself, you know, to, to live. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, one of uh, the things with Alec uh, that was so great for us was that he was just so open and he was so willing to share his story and, uh, you know, as a counterbalance to him, of course, we also had Matali in uh, Nunavut. Mm -hmm. And both young people, both young Inuit who are trying to figure out what their future is, both left the Arctic when they were young, both have returned, both are in some way trying to reclaim uh, their cultural heritage and identity, but also um, look to, you know, the realities of what the future is going to be. Of course, for Alec, trying to be a hunter, the, the changing ice is much more of an immediate uh, threat to him. Um, he can't be taught in the same ways. He's learning from his uncle, but his uncle can't teach him how to read the ice and he can't teach him how to read the weather because it's not acting in the way it has predictably for uh, you know, generations. 
and um, there's less and less hunters in where he lives in Connick in Greenland. There's less and less young people who want to become hunters. Um, so it's, it's not just, uh, you know, a threat of climate change. It's also a threat of, of cultural loss. And of course, if you trace the line back in Greenland, they were uh, colonized by Denmark, uh, you know, a few right. generations prior to when Nunavut was uh, colonized by, by Canadians. But um, I, there's still a, a historical legacy there. And then on the other side, um, in Nunavut in Canada, Matali is also trying to reclaim her identity, but it's, it's almost more of an, an existential thread. Um, she, there's much more of an immediacy of colonization on the Canadian side. As you saw in the film, this isn't the 19th century. This was one generation ago. I mean, there's a woman in the film in her 50s who was saying that she remembers living a traditional life growing up and then being taken away. This is not ancient history. This is, mm -hmm. uh, you know, everything being turned completely on its head uh, very, very recently. In Canada and Nunavut, the original sort of um, round of colonization really had to do with sovereignty and land claims. And that was around the time of World War II. And that's when, uh, you know, Inuit were very nomadic people and they had seasonal hunting grounds and seasonal camps. And the government came in and because they wanted to make sure that they had uh, sovereign claims in the north, they rounded up Inuit families and just relocated them to random communities. Um, they, there's, there's so much that's not even in the film. Um, there's stories of uh, families' dogs being slaughtered by the RCMP with no explanation. Um, of course, uh, you know, there's been inquiries and there's the RCMP says, well, there, there was distemper, but you know, the, the main point is that it wasn't, whatever the reason was, it was never explained. And the same goes for taking children away and putting them in residential schools, which were run by churches. Um, you know, right. I can't speak to what the intent was, but it certainly wasn't communicated to families or people with uh, tuberculosis in communities being taken away uh, and never returning. Um, you know, this all happened in the last 50 years, and uh, they were made to rely on outside income sources. They were forced into cultural retraining to try and become, you know, the word is civilized, but I put that in quotes, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, it, it, uh, the effect um, is, is still lingering now, and if you're measuring anything that has to do with people or the environment against a quarterly earnings report, that's um, very extremely short-sighted. And I think one thing that a lot of indigenous groups have in common is that something that's sustainable is sort of measured uh, in the long term. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Robin Carneen, host and producer of NAMAPA, First Peoples Radio. I've been speaking with Robert Lindahl, who has produced a special series called Climate Changes Here, Nature's Touch Film and Podcast. I've been working as a documentary filmmaker, which involves uh, no small amount of art, right? So when you're a writer, an artist, you choose your areas of interest. And uh, a lot of my work is related around environment and about around indigenous issues and um, also with other matters. So to find out more about my work, you can go to http colon slash slash agence a-G-E-N-C-E-R-L-A.com. Tune in to part two. I'll be interviewing Dave Skinner, who spent most of his life on the Olympic Peninsula, backpacking, climbing peaks, working on trails, and doing glacier research for the University of Washington. 
Also, we'll have Natalie Monterosa, who's a graduate and aspiring marine scientist from New York City with a BS in sustainability and an MA in earth and environmental science. Her interests are in physical oceanography, particularly in ocean heat, ice, and marine heat waves, marine conservation, climatology, and science. She is one of the founders and a current member of the Greenbelt Society.